You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I recently read an excerpt from a book called Delete. The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age. This is a book that begins with a photograph. It's a photograph of a, a young woman wearing a pirate's hat, and underneath the caption says, Drunken Pirate. Maybe you remember the story back in 2006. Stacy Snyder was a 25-year-old education major. It was spring semester, her senior year. She had passed all the credits. She had passed all the exams. Single mother, it had not been an easy path. She got an email from the administration saying, come in, we'd like to talk to you. For all she knew, it was to offer her a commendation for the great work. She got in there, and that's not what it was. They wanted to tell her they had seen a photograph, a picture of her wearing a pirate's hat with a caption underneath it that said, drunken pirate. And they said to Stacy, you're not going to get a certificate to be a teacher, and you'll never be a teacher. Because someone from the school where she was an intern sent that photo to the administration and said, this is behavior unbecoming of an educator. She was just wearing a pirate's hat and drinking something out of a plastic cup. But that one photograph, that single image, kept her from becoming the teacher she wanted to be. Sued the university, lost the suit. We all have pictures we wish we could delete. I know I have some. Maybe some of you have seen this picture. Uh, Men's synchronized swimming. George in his glorious bathing suit and nothing else. Um, I'm sorry if you have seen it. It uh, takes a little bit of context. I'm uh, invited every couple years to teach for a family camp down in Santa Cruz, California, Bel Air Presbyterian Church. And it's a privilege to do that, but they have some strange strange rituals at this camp. Uh, About midweek, they do this thing called Water Olympics up at the big pool. And it it, it kicks off by, um, under serious peer pressure, all the guys have to do men's synchronized swimming. You know, the Olympic strain is blaring out of the loudspeakers, and all the women and children are crying. You know, it's so beautiful. All these beer belly guys, farmer tans, are about 80 of them walking around the pool, you know, doing this whole deal. And... Uh, it's all choreographed. It's absolute chaos. It's, it's, it's humiliating to be a part of it. And then they honor their teacher and pastor by making him the climax. The piece de resistance is when all the guys swim into the center of the pool and they take me and lift me up into the air with a, a, a mouthful of water and then so I can spray it out like a, a Roman fountain in a, in a, an absolute granite god, you know, as a... There's a picture of masculinity there. And, and as, as soon as the water comes out of my eyes after I come up, I look up and I see all the women and children and I see I don't know how many cell phones and I hear a click. <laughs> now, this didn't used to be a problem. It used to be just my di- dirty little secret until about five years ago, these photos started to get uploaded to the internet and now the whole world uh, can see these pictures. In fact, five years ago, it was August and... Um, I was still employed at Bel Air Presbyterian Church. I came out of the water and cleared through the crowds, and there was this attractive young guy. Uh, He came up and he said, my name is Drew. Are you George Hinman? 
And I said, yeah. And he didn't look familiar. He wasn't with the retreat. And uh, he said, well, my family are vacationing nearby. We decided just to come to the pool today. And um, we understand that you're our new pastor up in Seattle, University <laughs> Presbyterian Church. And I'm going, oh, my gosh. No, you must be confusing me with somebody else. And he said, <clears throat> he said well, it's really interesting to see how you like to spend your vacation. Um, man, I wish we could delete that photo. But you know what? It's not just silly photos like that. It's not just virtual photos. Um, they are the snapshots that you and I carry around in our heads of our past and things that have happened to us and things that we've done that we really wish weren't in the album. These are the ones we tend to remember because they're painful. Uh, it may be that in your past, when you look back and you think, man, there are chapters in my life where things were done to me and I just, it just happened. In other cases, there's the things that where you are the one that made it happen. And I think these are a little scarier for me. When I was the agent, where I was the one who hurt, where I was the one who put the, the pirate hat on myself, or I was the one who worse said to the people around me, walk the plank. And I've got that pain. And I know some of you have that pain when you think about your past. They're portraits of rebellion or anger, indifference, sometimes violence, sickness, injustice, grief, portraits of failure. And the scary thing is when you look at those, they, they kind of come to mind every once in a while without you even wanting it. It's, what, it's the question, what does this say about who I am? Because I don't want to see myself in that way, but that is part of my past. And I can't find a way to delete it. Well, the good news this morning is that God can delete these pictures. Is that God in Jesus Christ can take all of those pictures and he can nail them to the cross. And he can reboot your life with a whole new operating system called Jesus Christ, the person. And then you find that life, your life, is no longer just about you and what you've done. It's about Jesus and what he's done and what he's doing in your life and in the world. And that's what we call being alive in Christ. Well, uh, let's look at the text today. This is our second week in the book of Galatians. If you brought your Bible, please open up to Galatians chapter 2, the end of the chapter there, verses 19 through 21. If you didn't bring a Bible, no problem. We've got a black book on the rack in front of you. Open that one up to page 946. There you'll find Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's get, read God's word aloud together as an act of worship. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. It's the Apostle Paul. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. <clears throat> it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification comes through the law, and Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. British singer-songwriter Sting 
has a memoir out called Broken Music. I like that title. Two weeks ago, you may have seen the New York Times interviewed Sting, and they asked him what was it like to write that memoir, Broken Music. And Sting said this, I began to realize while writing and remembering that memory is a neural muscle. And once you begin to stretch it, it grows to accommodate everything that has ever happened to you, often the things you might prefer to forget. But, Sting says, the abiding emotions that sustained me through the process were gratitude and forgiveness. Gratitude and forgiveness. That's the way I want to see my life. And I want to tell you that Paul is telling the Galatians that if they have faith in Jesus Christ, that's the way they can see their life too. Gratitude and forgiveness. How? Well, I want to show you two things. First of all, pictures of Jesus. And second of all, God's decision. First, pictures of Jesus. Paul gives an image in this text of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 19b, I have been crucified with Christ. Means I have gone to the cross with Christ. Right there when Jesus was crucified, I was crucified with Jesus. Now, if you remember any of your Sunday school, you have at least two problems with this statement. First of all, when Jesus was crucified, there were thieves on the uh, two crosses. Remember, there were three crosses. He was in the center. There was a thief on his right and left. And neither of them was named Paul or Saul. Paul wasn't there. Second problem you might have with this is that the, the guy who's writing this letter, Paul, is still alive. So he hasn't been crucified as far as I can tell. He hasn't died at all. This is about 18 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Savior. So what in the world does Paul mean when he says, I have been crucified with Christ? Well, actually, that phrase is one word. Um, the word crucified in Greek has another word that's been stuck on the front. That's the Greek word for with. Paul has just smashed the word for with on the front of crucified. So it's one word. Being crucified with, the Greek word, by the way, is sun, like synagogue, synthesis, means with, <clears throat> and crucified with. So really what Paul's saying is, I've been co-crucified with Jesus. When Jesus died, I was there, in Jesus and with Jesus. Now, Paul has this habit of taking the word sun, or with, and packing on the front of almost every verb that could be attributed to the great acts of Jesus Christ. When you read Paul, you see Paul does this all the time. He could say, I, I died with Christ. I was buried with Christ. I was raised with Christ. Made alive with Christ. Seated with Christ on the right hand of the Father. All past tense. Paul says all that stuff. Whoa, Wait a minute. These are all pictures of Jesus' life. And the Apostle Paul goes, yeah, he gave himself for me. He gave himself to the Father for me. So that the pictures of Jesus' life somehow become the pictures of my life. They're in my album. So he, 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 he sees God's identification with his human nature and mine, and yours, so tightly that whatever happened to Jesus has happened to him. I have been crucified with Christ. 
When we talk about communion, we've done the exact same thing in English that Paul did in Greek. Communion, cum, the word for with, on union, the word for togetherness. At communion, we are with, we are united together as a body, but most importantly to Jesus Christ. So this word communion is the uh, English word, version of the word koinonia. And I want to teach you this word, koinonia, this year, because it's one of the two words in our mission statement. Share hope. Well, koinonia means to share. It means God has shared life with us. So that whatever Jesus was is what, what you are. And you look at the things that happened to Jesus and you say, it doesn't look anything like my life. Those aren't my pictures. And that, that's true on one level, but that's just the way you see it because God sees his pictures as representative of your life now because of his grace. And the way that you do that is through faith. Faith is seeing what God sees when you look at your life. It's looking at the cross of Jesus Christ in a way that recharacterizes how you see yourself. This uh, summer I had the privilege of visiting one of our members, one of our dear members named Charlie, and I saw a picture of him. We were hanging out in his living room, and his daughter, Emily, uh, jumped up from her seat because we were talking. Charlie was there at D-Day, and we were talking about World War II and the European theater, and she jumps up, and she goes over to the library, the uh, bookshelf, and she pulls off a Time Life photo journal of World War II, and she opens up, and there's this double-page glossy photo, and she points to somebody in the picture, and she says, do you know, do you know who that is? Does that look like anyone you know? And I said, no. And she said, that's Charlie. And it was a picture of a field in France just packed with GIs sitting uh, right next to each other underneath a stage on which French women are dancing. It was um, a USO hospitality morale booster event, you know, and there's Charlie sitting in the field. As soon as she points this out to me, Charlie gets this huge smile on his face and kind of a guilty look, and he goes, I wasn't supposed to be there. <laughs> really? He said, yeah, it was, it was just for the enlisted men. And I was an officer. It was limited space, so they didn't let the officers come to this thing. But my enlisted men were pretty cool guys. And they didn't want to go without me. They wanted me with them. So they cobbled together an enlisted man's uniform from different parts of their kit. And they dressed me in this uniform. And they smuggled me in with them. And it was a great night. And I, and I think in some way, this is what God has done for you, Jesus Christ. You're with Jesus Christ. So that, so that God has entered into your humanity to take on your uniform. You know, so that you could be someplace where you have no right to be in God's grace and in his love. See, God went someplace where he had no right to be in our sin and in our shame and in our death. He took your uniform on and went to the cross. So that you could take his uniform on and live alive in Christ. I've been crucified with Jesus. And now Christ lives in me. At the cross, my pictures begin to look so different. And now I can start to flip through the files of my past and look at my own life in a new way with, with a spirit of gratitude and real forgiveness because of Jesus pictures of Jesus. But let's move on and talk about God's decision because you might ask, well, why the cross? I mean, this is a horrible instrument of capital punishment. Why the cross? What's going on there that recharacterizes my vision of who I am and who I've been? 
Well, it has to do with God's decision. In the word that the Apostle Paul uses for it, it's a fancy 50 cents theological word, but it's the word in verse 21, justification. Justification. I won't spend a lot of time with this, but I want you to understand this, what this word means because it's the heart of the gospel. It's really an important word. It's the same word in Greek as the word for righteousness. And this has confused many people. Because if there's one thing that justification doesn't mean is to make someone righteous. What you have to understand about the word justification is that it's a legal term. That it comes to us from the courtroom. It's a forensic term. And it doesn't mean to make someone righteous. It means to declare someone righteous. As a matter of fact, you might have a footnote in your Bible, the Pew Bible does, in mine it's I, and it says, or reckoned as righteous, counted as righteous, whether you are or you're not. If you think about it in the courtroom context, a judge never has the capacity or the authority to make someone innocent. She can only declare someone innocent on the basis of the facts. On the basis of the facts of the case, she can say this person is innocent. She can justify them. Or in the opposite of justification, by the way, is condemn. She can condemn them. On the basis of the facts of the case, you are condemned. Well, what God, what God has done in Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, is he's looked at the facts of the case, which are not the facts of your life or your works, but the facts of Jesus' life and his work. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, God has rendered his verdict. You are justified. I declare you righteous. That's my decision about you. That's my decision about you. You've been declared righteous. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. If this is hard to get your head around, it's because it's absolutely foreign to human nature and to our culture to get it this way. And if you want to hear it in the fewest possible words, turn to Romans 4 or 5, not now, but later, where Paul writes, God justifies the ungodly. Think about that. There's only one judge in the world who can do that justly. God justifies the ungodly. Let that sink in. Because I don't believe I'm the only person here today that needs to hear that. That God justifies the ungodly. This is so foreign to us. When the world, in the world, your stock rises on the basis of nothing other than your performance, your works. It's not grace at all. I mean, you could wake up last week, Tuesday morning, if you're Tesla Motors and you are the coolest kid on the block, you, you know, the Consumer Reports has never written such a glowing rating in all categories of you. And then you wake up Wednesday morning and because of one little fire that hurts nobody in Seattle, Washington, you are now $2.4 billion poorer. You've been kicked to the curb. Why? Because your life isn't picture perfect. That's the way the world is. It's not the way Jesus is. Jesus is so different. He's so different. Imagine me in a bar. Or if that's hard, imagine me in a coffee shop that has a liquor license. And it's, <laughs> and it's Friday night. And I'm studying. And someone comes up to me. And uh, we get talking. And uh, he says, you know, I love to get near Jesus. But Jesus would never get near me. And I said, let me ask you a question. Jesus walks in this door. 
Who do you think he wants to sit with? Do you think he wants to be at your table or at my table? And he goes, that's easy. He wants to be with you. Because you're a pastor, and I'm a guy who's had too much to drink because I can't get past the pain of being addicted to pornography. I feel alone. Jesus wants to sit with you. I want to tell you, that guy will answer that question 10 times out of 10 that same way, and 10 times out of 10, he'll be wrong. Jesus doesn't want to sit with me. He wants to sit with him. He wants to sit with the one who is ungodly. See, the religious people in Jesus' day, they never got this. They could never figure out why Jesus didn't want to sit with them. We keep everything kosher. We do the law just the way it's written. And Jesus is out there with the prostitute. He's out there with a tax collector. He's out there touching lepers. This is gross. You know, I was talking to someone actually in a coffee shop um, just Friday. And he had those questions about hell. And I, I said, you know, the problem with you is you're focusing on hell and you're not focusing on Jesus. If you look at Jesus and the cross, you'll think about hell very differently. Because, you know, in the Old Testament, the worst thing you could say about someone is you're cursed. Deuteronomy says, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. And I want to tell you, Jesus hung on a tree. He went to that place of, of cursedness. That was the closest thing in the Old Testament of saying to someone, I'll meet you in hell. And you see, God has come to identify, to so identify with the sinner that God has gone to hell to stand by me and to stand by you and to render his verdict, to make his decision not guilty. You're righteous. That's who you are. It starts to change the way you think about your life, doesn't it? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's just deleted. He's taken those photos and he's deleted all the brokenness. Oh, the beauty is still there, but the brokenness is gone. And then he's rebooted the whole system and said, I, I, I got a better operating system. Let's just take the law and leave it behind because what you need is Jesus Christ living in you. And that's what I give. How does this happen? I mean, for us. Well, in a word, it's faith. That's the word that Paul uses. I live by faith, verse 20, in the Son of God, who loved me, I love how personal it is, who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith, that's the decision that you have to make. And please, not everybody makes this decision. Faith is not about getting rid of your questions. It's not about getting all religious. It's about looking at the cross. Harder than you look at your pictures. You remember these three women that uh, for 11 years were held in captivity in Cleveland and abused. Horrible story. But I want to tell you, let me give you two pictures. First of all, these two women, Amanda Berry, Gina DeJesus, Michelle Knight on the one hand, and then a picture of the perpetrator, Ariel Castro on the other hand. Now, I have no doubt that both the victim and the victimizer have suffered horrendously, but there's a profound difference between the two in, in, in terms of their capacity to move forward in life. Because Ariel says, I'm a monster, you remember that quote? And he takes his life just a month later. But these three women, with all that they've been through, are finding something different. Uh, Michelle Knight comes out of that darkness. It's indescribable. And she says this, I may have been through hell and back, but I am strong enough to walk through hell with a smile on my face and my head held high. I will not let the situation define me. I will define the situation. I'm building a brand new life. 
So I don't know if she has faith in Jesus, but this is just exactly the kind of thing that Jesus will do if you place your trust in him. So how do you look at your photos? And what do you see when you scroll through the timeline or flip through the album? Are you able to nail those pictures to the cross of Jesus Christ? Are you able to see Jesus and his beauty somehow in the picture? See, I've discovered that there's something much more beautiful than a picture-perfect life. And that's a life that Jesus has redeemed. That's a picture of grace. And I look back on my life, and years later, the things that were horrible, even things that I'm absolutely ashamed of, I can look at them and go, wow, I feel some gratitude because of the forgiveness that's there. And I see that God has used even those, he's redeemed those parts of my life in such a way that I'm a happier, stronger, better person today. A few weeks ago, I told uh, you that uh, my wife and I are in family therapy because we want to be better parents. And some of you came up to me and you said, oh, thank you for saying that because we have such hurt in our family or because I'm trying to get help from a therapist also. And you know what? It's becoming a ministry for me because I can say I, I'm in the midst of the hell, but you know what? I have hope because I know Jesus and he's with me too. And I have pictures of you in that kind of ministry. I know some of you, pictures of you, you've been unemployed for two years. Pictures of you going through a divorce. Pictures of you in absolute grief. And yet, in all of these pictures, there's Jesus. And you're able to turn this into a ministry because people around you are going through the same thing. And you say, man, I'm, I know what that's like because that's where I am or that's where I've been. And I'm finding Jesus in the middle of it, in the frame. I just I want to close with this. Rick and Kay Warren, you know, um, Rick Warren's a pastor and he wrote The Purpose Driven Life and he's helped a lot of people uh, with that book. It's New York Times bestseller, but just last April, you probably saw that their son, Matthew, 28 years old, took his life. Absolutely devastated. Rick and Kay Warren. And you know, so many people piled on in such a cruel, judgmental way, in the way that only the world can do, and said, you know, oh, you know so much about purpose. Well, I guess your son didn't know anything about purpose and horrible things. And I wanted to stop, by the way, and say, if you have mental illness, you or someone you love, I want to say this, it's real, it's not your fault, and you need to get help. We need to get help. It's so much more common than you realize. For, for decades, Matthew Warren struggled with mental illness, and they lost the battle. He had a strong faith, but they lost the battle. And... and with the guilt and the pain and the torment that these two parents are going through right now, the amazing thing is they're able to give witness to Jesus Christ. It hasn't rocked their faith. Did an interview with CNN. You'll see him in People magazine this month. Um, and here's what they said. In God's garden of grace, even a broken tree bears fruit. In God's garden of grace, even a broken tree bears fruit. There's always room for your tree in God's garden. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are alive in Christ. We say that not because we see it in ourselves, but because we believe it in your word. This is your decision. You have committed yourself. We could no more experience condemnation and then you would have betrayed your own son. God, so we pray that you'll surface some of these photos, not because we want to look at them again, but because we need to nail them to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
once and for all and just let them go. So that we can now look at our lives, past, present, and future, and do it in the context of gratitude, in the context of your forgiveness, and just be, be able to worship you. So we pray for that gift, and we pray that we would be the kind of people who extend it, extend it to one another and to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio, or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.